0: the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that opinions all are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law sensitive topics are discussed discretion is advised
1: on this week's Court TV podcast breaking news coming out of Minneapolis with the judge ruling to allow a third-degree murder charge against Derek Chauvin and the bombshell announcement of a record-setting civil settlement between the city of Minneapolis and George Floyd's family. Court TV's Michael Ayala joins me to break down what it all means and how it could impact the trial going forward. And we'll also have part one of Meet the Jurors.
0: This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan.
1: Welcome to the Court TV podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading and listening and and share with a friend. Let them know what's going on here. As uh, during the course of the trial of the man accused of murdering George Floyd, we are taking a deep dive into this case, um, taking a look at issues um, at a level that no one else is, uh, quite honestly. No one else is. People are kind of like, all right, yeah, the trial's going on, but we are actually there. Our cameras are inside the courtroom. We've got our crews on the ground getting uh, inside information. We're all over every document that has been filed in this case. And, of course, gavel-to-gavel coverage, beginning with jury selection, which is taking place uh, as we are recording this. uh, As they get ready, they need to get 14 jurors, um, and 12 will ultimately deliberate. They can only fit 14 inside the courtroom, which is why they've limited it to only two alternates, which is kind of dangerous in the pandemic, but that's where we are. But there's a few things I want to focus on here, and I want to begin with the actual charges, which have finally been set and settled in the case. And joining me is my colleague, my friend, uh, Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor. Uh, Michael, thank you. And here we are uh, in the midst of jury selection, and and we finally find out what all the charges are. Second-degree murder, which is kind of like, felony murdered second degree unintentional which is like felony murder in every other state they're alleging an assault and the assault he died uh, during the course of the of the assault Uh, then we've got manslaughter and now finally third degree is back in the depraved indifference uh, the eminently dangerous act uh, that they are alleging here what are your thoughts about third degree in this case because personally i don't think it's a it's a clean fit for the facts
2: I have to disagree with you there, Vinny. Um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a catch-all uh, cause there, and I think that it was important for the prosecution to get that charge in front of this jury. Um, there is going to be some difficulty proving intent. Um, we've heard a couple of prospective jurors actually say that they don't think the police went to the scene to hurt anybody with the intention of certainly not killing anybody. So intent is going to be an issue for jurors. I think that's clear. And when you talk about getting a conviction for murder, I think the third degree murder charge sort of allows, and I don't want to use the word compromise, uh, but if you have folks who are differing as to what exactly was in the mind of Derek Chauvin, I think they can come together on this idea that the length of time And the amount of time that he kept that knee on the neck of George Floyd after he was unresponsive, that everyone in the area can see he was unresponsive, I think you can get to a point where people can agree that that length of time, either the entire length or the length of time from when he was unresponsive for the next three or four minutes that you see him still pressing his knee on George Floyd's neck, that that evinces a depraved mind, when you look at the totality of the circumstances. So I think it fits perfectly.
1: Well, here's why I don't think it fits. And and eminently dangerous is what the act has to be that he's engaging in. And what is he doing? He's doing this this neck restraint, okay? And there is, you know, there will be an argument from the defense that this is what he was trained to do. And I see it only one of two ways, okay? I see this neck restraint that he was trained to do. Either he's on top of George Floyd... And he's intentionally doing it wrong because he wants to harm George Floyd. And that is a fit for second degree murder, which is felony murder. He's intentionally doing it wrong because he wants to hurt George Floyd. He wants to assault him. To me, that's second degree. That's a fit. Or he's doing what he's trained to do, but he's doing it wrong. And if he's doing it wrong, then it's culpable negligence and and that's the manslaughter this this eminently dangerous act i don't think the knee on the neck falls into the category the way the law sees it and we talk about depraved indifference you know, when we were in law school, we were talking about uh, taking a, a, a brick and, and just dropping it off a building, and there's a, there's there's people walking on the sidewalk underneath. You know that that is eminently dangerous. You drive a car through a crowd of people. You know that's eminently dangerous. You fire a gun into a a, a dark room with people in it, and you don't know where that where that bullet's going to go. To me, that's that's what depraved indifference is. It's not. What is described here and and what the evidence and I believe the facts will play out is that he is doing a restraint. He's either purposely doing it wrong or negligently doing it wrong. He's not engaging in an act that in and of itself is eminently dangerous.
2: All right. So I'll explain it to you why it's eminently dangerous. It's those three to four minutes, Vinny, after-
1: Wait, wait, wait. Can you do it, but not in that tone? Can you do it, but <laughs> well, not I in that to, tone, have to to Michael Ayala? I
2: had to sit here for almost a minute, listen to what you learned in law school. This is the real world, Vinny, and I'm going to tell you what's happening in the real world and what people saw on that tape. There comes a point where, and I agree with you, it, it, it's difficult to make that distinction for the first five or six minutes where- He's got his knee on his neck and there's an argument to be made. He's doing what he's taught to do. He's restraining someone who perhaps, depending on your perception, is resisting arrest or is acting out or is perhaps on drugs and they wanna keep him down because that's what the training manual says. But there comes a point when everyone around sees that this person is no longer responsive. And for three minutes, he continues to keep his knee on the neck of that individual. I think those three to four minutes are when his actions become eminently dangerous because the wording is knows or should have known is eminently dangerous. He should have known. Once everyone in the area is telling you that that person, check his pulse, he is not moving anymore. Keeping your knee on his neck after that point suggests an act that is eminently dangerous that he should have known would have resulted in that.
1: Now, I'll I'll tell you why you're wrong, but I'll do it in a tone. I hope that's not the same tone (laughs) that you use with me. And and that is, at that point, the act is completed already. George Floyd is dead. What if George Floyd is dead at that point? We do not know if he's dead.
2: The woman at the scene, now, she's not going to be able to testify to this, unfortunately. But she said at that point, when she tried to intervene, she could have saved his life. Well, I think we don't know. We do not know. And that's going to be a point of contention. I hear you. It's definitely something that the defense will try to argue. But I don't know how they're going to prove that.
1: Because it's the first four minutes that are going to that, that it, it arguably killed him. I mean, the, the uh, prosecution is not going to argue that it's the last four minutes that killed him, are they? They're going to say it's the first four minutes.
2: They're going to argue that the totality of the nine minutes is what killed him. But the act that was depraved and eminently dangerous is once he sees he's no longer in need, because they have to figure out to combat exactly what you're saying. The defense arguing that this is how they're trained. And unfortunately, we've seen the training manual. There is an argument to be made that that position is appropriate. Now, I'm not I don't think that particular position he's in matches the position that's in the training manual, but that will be I'm sure argued at trial, but at the end of the day they've got to find a way to get over that training argument. And I think at some point that's going to be the argument that there was no longer any need for it and once that need was vitiated, it becomes
1: an eminently dangerous I act. think it becomes second degree murder. If, if he, I think I think that's second degree murder. I uh, call me crazy, and and that's why I like the the facts to fit the charges, right? And and that's that's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that this wasn't murder or murder can't be proven. What I'm saying is. It, it sounds like second degree or manslaughter to me, but uh, you disagree with me. The appellate division disagrees with me. The judge Cahill disagrees with me and the prosecution disagrees with me. So you guys win and, and it will be part of this case <laughs> and it will be part of this case. We'll see if, the, if
2: we have to see what the jury, and the jury will tell the us. And the
1: matters. jury will tell us. All right. Another big development in this case involved the civil case. George Floyd's family, represented by Benjamin Crump, Antonio uh, Ramanucci, and and some other great attorneys, uh, going after the city of Minneapolis, the city of Minneapolis, settling the case for $27 million, but making the announcement in the middle of jury selection in the criminal case, which was, I think, surprised some people, especially the defense attorney, Eric Nelson. Let's take a listen. Um, to him, addressing this in court, but I am gravely concerned with the
3: news that broke on Friday, um, relevant to the se- civil settlement in this case. Um, this is, by my count, um, notwithstanding all of the uh, high-ranking state officials that made comments at the at the onset of this entire uh, situation. But by my account, this is the third highly prejudicial and incredibly prejudicial uh, press leak or press release that has um, very suspicious timing, to say the least, um, and has an incredible propensity to taint a jury pool.
1: All right, I don't believe in coincidences, Michael Ayala. I believe this was done purposely, um, uh, and I think it was coordinated, by the both parties to the settlement. I think um, George Floyd's family's legal team and the city are all on the same page and they wanted to send a message during jury selection. Yeah.
2: You know, I, as much as I hate to agree, I I have to agree with you on this one, Vinny. There were a number of ways to handle this and to choose to handle it. This way is curious at best. And I think it had a message. I think the message was sent in a number of, quarters. Uh, they wanted to send a message to the public that the city stands behind the folks in the city and the people who were hurt by what happened. They wanted to send a message that we need to move forward as a city. And then I think they wanted to send a message to that courtroom that this is where the city stands on this. And uh, we can't get away from the fact that, you know, the AG, Keith Ellers and Son, is on the board as well, on um, the city council, excuse me, um, who, who was a part of this decision. You know, these are optics that, you know, as far as the defense is concerned, don't look very good. And I'm worried about this being a fairly strong appealable issue um, because this, 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 I think was, uh, I was a defense attorney. I'd be more, even more upset than Eric Nelson. was.
1: Yeah. And ultimately, I mean, it could impact an appeal, but for it to impact an appeal, you've already got the conviction and, As a prosecutor, I always loved when they talked about the appeal because that meant that I won. But we'll see how how it plays out. But, you know, I think to say that it's coincidental or we just happen to reach an agreement now, I'm not buying any of that. And it was a very public uh, announcement that they made. You had the mayor... on stage, who is the defendant in the case, right? He represents the city of Minneapolis. Now, he's not personally paying a dime uh, other than the amount that he contributed f- through his taxes that he pays, right? Uh, but it's the taxpayers that are paying. And there was nothing wrong with it, right, in terms of legally, right? It was a completely separate case, um, you know, separate entity. One does not impact the other. It's just, it could as you said, and and I think it's so true, could jeopardize um, a a verdict in this case and could jeopardize the jury selection process if if it becomes a problem with too many jurors. Um, So I think all of that was sort of ill-advised, but I think they're trying to get ahead of it, Um, one, to to let any potential protesters know that, hey, listen, the city knows that— we're taking responsibility for this. It was wrong and it was really wrong. And, and twenty seven million dollars uh, sends that message. Um, and I think their concerns are beyond just the criminal case, but the city of Minneapolis.
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, some people tried to compare it to the Knorr case where they waited till the day of the verdict to come out with a settlement uh, agreement. But this is not the nor case. This is a case that really there's no precedent for it. And, you know, there was a suggestion by the defense in their argument that there might have been something between the the prosecution and the city and everybody sort of getting together to sort of, you know, taint the jury pool in some way. I, I don't see that at all. These are two separate entities. I think the mayor has his own concerns, because as we saw, there were 500,000 that's going to be put into George Floyd Square there at 38th in Chicago, which is a, a point of major concern for that city right now. It's basically holding up the city from healing and moving forward. They want to get that thing uh, underway and get whatever done that the city wants to get done. They're going to get that done. Um, so I think they were separate. And I do think that it was purposeful, but not in cahoots with anyone else.
1: All right. How about this? Just looking at it from uh, as a lawyer's perspective, right? Let's let's take everything else out of it. The actual civil case against the city of Minneapolis, was it a $27 million case? Is that what, what the value really was? Um, what, would the value of the case go up or down after a guilty or a not guilty verdict? I mean, in, in any scenario, could you see the city saying, wow, we got to pay more than $27 million after the criminal trial?
2: No, the leverage for um, Ben Crump was highest right now. It was highest right now. Um, I think if you waited for after a verdict, and let's say he got a guilty verdict, then I think that takes the pressure off the city because they got a guilty verdict. But right now, we don't know where this is going to end up, right? And as a result, the city is saying, we've got, as you said, get ahead of this thing, we get this money, this 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 incredible amount of money out in front of the public, and perhaps that goes towards healing, and maybe can sort of quell some of the issues that may come out at the end of the trial, depending on how it turns out.
1: And and I always look at it also through the filter of the victims, which would be uh, George Floyd's family, and for them, the results of the criminal case are never guaranteed. A settlement is guaranteed, so. At the end of the day, they walk away with uh, uh, some sense of justice that someone has said, yes, something terribly wrong happened and someone was held responsible. And, you know, 12 people will tell us about whether or not uh, Derek Chauvin is responsible and whether or not Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd. And speaking of those 12 people, um, jurors are being seated. And we're going to, when we come back, we're going to do what I'm calling part one of Meet the Jurors. We're going to talk about some of the jurors who have been seated already. You'll hear uh, what they had to say, and we'll try to analyze, you know, are these folks who who are the best-case scenario for one side, the other, or are they just what we all want, which is fair
0: and impartial jurors? That's next. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice.
3: In your uh, questionnaire, you acknowledge that you've seen a Facebook video or certain videos of of this incident, right? I have not seen the video. Oh, you have not. I'm sorry. I had to flipped my page. So um, you've not seen any of the social media videos or news stories with clips of the video or anything? No. Okay. I've seen the still, there's a still image that was pretty common, but that's the most I've seen. Okay. Thank you for that clarification.
1: A shocking moment during jury selection. Uh, that's juror number two, white male in his 20s who says he's never seen the video, and he's seated, and he will see that video for the very first time in court during the trial. Unbelievable. Michael Ayal is still with me, Court TV anchor. Uh, Michael, I don't know about your guests on, on your show on Court TV, but my guests, so skeptical. They don't believe this guy. Well, I believe this guy. I mean, not everyone wants to watch someone die on a video necessarily. And some people have a lot going on. He's a young guy in his 20s. I believe him. But my, my guests, who are mostly criminal defense attorneys, don't believe him.
2: Yeah, I, I have to believe him as well. What I've been surprised at, Vinny, is how many of the jurors, uh, prospective jurors, excuse me, um, had only seen small snippets of it. and And they all said the same thing. they they didn't want to watch exactly like you said, they didn't want to watch someone die on tape. It was not something they were interested in seeing. And again, we're journalists, lawyers, we're used to those kinds of things. And and we can, in fact, get a little jaded. So, you know, we're going to look at these things and it doesn't affect us the same way. A lot of folks out there are not like that. They're not as into the news cycle or those types of things. So at first I was skeptical, but as this jury selection process went on, I became less and less skeptical. And I believe there was a second juror who said they hadn't seen the video. Um, I think one of them went today, said they hadn't seen the video either. So I'm I'm no longer skeptical. I I think, you know, and then the the question is, Vinny, and I'll throw it back at you. Why would he lie? What is, you think he was trying just to get on the jury?
1: Yeah, I don't. I, there, to me, there's no reason to lie. But, but I'm telling you, they're just so skeptical of jurors all the time. Uh, and, you know, they're in the courtroom day in and day out. And I guess sometimes they don't win their cases, so they don't trust jurors as, as much as, as we do. Um, uh, but he's I think he's going to be a good juror. And I, and I think he he may be a, a decent one for the defense, even though he's a young guy in his 20s, which in this case, I don't think generally is good for the defense. But uh, he's a scientist. And sometimes you take science and and that uh, standard, the legal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. And sometimes it's, it's tough to convince them.
2: Yeah. That's, you know, the scientists, I think you're exactly right. I mean, that's the type of person. I think the defense would be looking for someone who's analytical, because this is a case that really, when we talk about the, the emotional reaction to this tape is what really has everybody incensed, but The defense is going to try to turn this into a very straightforward scientific argument regarding cause of death. They're going to bring in all this information, medical information, experts to talk about the cause of death not being the knee on the neck. And they're going to want someone who's able to sift out the emotion and really just listen to that type of evidence, which I think a person who is a chemist is wonderfully suited to do. Um, so in that sense, he's a perfect juror, uh, and then sit there and impassionately and sort of remove emotionally and determine: is it likely that he caught that this was the cause of death as opposed to this emotional and awful videotape that I'm being shown?
1: The next juror I want you to hear from, uh, juror number nine, uh, mixed race woman in her twenties. Let's listen. Why did you answer
3: that you have a somewhat negative impression of Mr. Mr. Showman?
2: Um, again, just from, that's the only thing I've ever seen of this person, and that video, you know, just makes you sad. I feel like it's just, nobody wants to see somebody die, whether it was, like, his fault or not. I just, nobody wants to see that, you know, it's just hard to watch something. So, yeah, and of course, obviously, you see all of these people talking and saying things and coming at someone's character on social media and stuff so the perception that you're given is negative but then when you actually think back on it you're like okay I don't know this person though so I feel like this but again I could be proven wrong or whatever so but yeah just from the interpretation of social media and you know like what my what people say on Facebook and stuff like that your family your friends or whatever is yeah
1: You know, this is my favorite juror, Michael, for two reasons. One, when she got on the jury, her reaction was awesome. That's literally what she said, awesome. And two, she's type 1 diabetic like I am.
2: (laughs) That's right. That's right. So it's interesting. And she wanted to make sure that there was time for her to make, she could get enough sugar in her system so that nothing happened to her. So good for her. Uh, This is the one that I was skeptical about. I mean, she, from the very beginning, seemed super anxious to be on this jury. Um, why again? That's the question. Why? Why? I understand wanting to do your civic duty. I understand wanting to be a part of a case that's perhaps historic in its proportion. But just to be so excited that you scream awesome when you're chosen, then you know that that puts you in a little bit in the suspect range. But her answers were well thought. She's intelligent. Um, her answers were well thought out. She seems very well reasoned. She seemed like a juror. And I've been impressed so far, Vinnie, by how these jurors have really been very much down the middle. They've said some things that I think the defense can feel comfortable with and hang their hat on. They've said some things that the prosecution can grab onto and say, this is someone that I can convince uh, with my arguments. And and she certainly was one of those people. So, um, you know, again, while that did cause some skepticism for me, I think she's a solid juror.
1: Yeah. And I think the defense likes her as a wild card. You know, you always because you know, the defense is, yes, they're looking for a jury to come back unanimously and say not guilty. But, you know, they're realistic uh, most of the time in their approach and they're looking for anything that sort of disrupts things. And she's, you know, with that enthusiasm, that's that's a little different than the rest. Uh, and I think prosecutors did not want to strike her because they're not striking anyone other than white people. <laughs> from what I've seen.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, They're only striking white people, let's be honest. I think they have to be, and, and, and I, I get your point. I don't like the implication, but I think with a county like Hennepin County, where you have 74% uh, white people and 13% black people, I think it's something like 7% Hispanic, I think you have to be ultra open to any black juror, jury. Uh, Let me ask you something, Michael. Sure. Let
1: me ask you something, because we know it's illegal to strike a juror. Because of the color of their skin, sure. But, it, it, but it's legal to keep a juror based on the color of their skin, right? Yes, if you
2: can. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, right? Because there's no explanation for it. The jurors on. I don't like the implication. I think, I think by virtue of life experience as a person of color, uh, puts you in a unique position in this trial, one that could a make it difficult for you to even get through that initial process of getting on this jury, right? Because your experiences are gonna be such that perhaps you don't have negative experiences with police or you're gonna have a very strong reaction to the video or you're gonna be very positive towards Black Lives Matter or you had some involvement with some of the marches or protests. So suddenly an already smaller black pool of of, of possible jurors is shrunk down even further. So you've got both sides there. So I'm gonna be a little more open to anyone of color because I think that life experience is important
1: to have in that jury room. Next juror is a white male in his 30s, juror number 19.
3: Your role as a a juror in this case is to weigh the evidence, right? Yes, sir. Are you able, would you be able to listen to the evidence from both sides?
0: I believe so, yes.
3: Would you be able to, keep an open mind until all of the evidence? I is believe presented? so, yes. Okay. Would you be able to, um, if, if ultimately you felt that the state of Minnesota failed to meet its burden to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt, would you have any uh, reservation in finding Mr. Chauvin not guilty?
2: If that's the, 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 the path that was laid out, no.
1: Okay.
3: Um, and conversely, the other way too, right?
2: That's correct.
1: Okay, so here's the thing, Michael, this jury is, and if I look at this jury on paper as it's coming together as we speak, very young and much more diverse than the rest of the pop, than the normal population in Hennepin County. If you just look at percentages from uh, the census and the demographics, it's, it's much more diverse. It's male. It, it skews male, uh, uh, but very young. If I look at that on paper, I'm thinking that's great for prosecutors. But then as I listen to the answers and what they're saying, it's not as much. As a matter of fact, there are some that I think sound really good for the defense. So I'm kind of, you know, that's, that's the strange thing for me in trying to evaluate this jury. You know, what they look like on paper and what they sound like are two different things to me. I
2: think this idea that the, the younger, this, this younger male, a white male is good for the prosecution is really going out the window in this case. I think, you know, I think the younger white male right now in America has a very different approach and idea about what's going on in the world. And I think these guys are indicative of that by some of their answers. They, they, they didn't seem very liberal. Um, they didn't seem super well informed about some of the issues in this case. They've sort of almost kept themselves at a distance from it, which tells me a lot about them in general, um, which I think makes them good for the defense. But I think there are enough people on there that, Vinny, what I think is gonna happen in that jury room is they're gonna be some really good discussions. I think they've got enough different points of view and different ideas, both on both sides of the spectrum, as well as in the middle, that there are gonna be some really hard, conversations and i think it's going to be tough conversations but i think it's going to lead to perhaps a just result
1: a compromise for third degree
2: (laughs) did i say that i think i said that earlier that's
1: why that third degree is so important yeah all right final juror we're going to look out here in part one of meet the jurors because part two will be next week um juror 27 this again is a male in his 30s but is black
3: we talked about how it could have been me, comma or anyone else.
2: I mean, anyone else, me uh, human,
3: mm-hmm.
2: can be any, it could be anybody. It could have been you. And so that's what I mean. And, uh, and for me, I also used to live not far from that area before I mean, when I first met my wife, so that's why I was like, it could have been me, so it could be anybody.
1: You know, there's another part of this uh, juror that's interesting, um, not, uh, not born in this country. So he's been here for 14 years. And I, I'm, to me, that's probably the biggest factor for this juror, is someone who's come to America. But the question is, how, how do you think that plays?
2: Well, biggest factor is that he's black. That's first of all. Second of all, that he's black and born outside of this country is a very important fact, because all black isn't equal, Right. When you have someone who hasn't had the American experience from day one, um, I think they take a different look at, a different approach to a number of issues. And I think this guy bore it out. I mean, I think he's a, a, a great juror. I think he's got, again, things that both sides can hang their hats on. He's someone who you know, has respect for police, um, has and understands some of the issues facing African-Americans, folks, folks who were born here but also comes with a different mindset from another country where perhaps he looks at some of the issues in this country and wonders, what's the big deal? Because where he's coming from, things are a lot different, a lot worse, et cetera, et cetera. And we should be happy with all the wonderful things that America provides. Again, these are arguments that that come up. Um, So he's a person that I think um, really swings both ways, but again, is an important voice in that room that I think is going to bring... Um, not only that scientific mindset, because again, he's an IT person. He's someone, again, for the defense's side, is going to be willing to sit there and sort of look at things from a very sort of structured and scientific way, which I think is going to help the defense, but also just being a black man in this country. And some of his experience suggests emotionally he's in this case as well.
1: I think the other big part is he's he lived close by. Yes. Okay. So he gives a, another level of perspective to the other jurors in their discussions about what was going on that day. He knows the neighborhood, and he'll understand those issues, I think, a lot better. So, I, again, I agree, another fantastic juror. I really like all these jurors. And, you know, the, As you said, very different perspectives, a lot of them, but so many of them were very thoughtful uh, about what they were saying and in their answers. And I was also impressed by jurors who were dismissed by the judge because of their honesty, Mm-hmm. And and I appreciate that because that's what our system needs. But good stuff. Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor. You can watch him every night right on your front row seat to justice. Gavel to gavel coverage. Nobody else is doing what we're doing. It's our cameras, our microphones inside the courtroom. And, uh, Michael, we will speak again. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure, man. Always a pleasure to be with
1: you. All right. When we come back, uh, I've got one more issue to talk about in, in this case. And to me, it's it's about. The big lesson that is taking place during jury selection of this trial, okay? It's a big lesson that we should all learn. I thought we learned it before, but we didn't. Uh, But this time, uh, I think it'll be for real. And I will reveal what the big lie is that is told by lawyers, mostly defense attorneys, all the time.
0: Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area.
1: We'll never get a fair jury. They'll never get a fair jury. How many times have I heard that? And it's usually uttered by uh, criminal defense attorneys. Sometimes it's just it's just uttered by members of the public saying, uh, they'll never get a jury for that case. They'll never get a fair jury. How, how are you going to get one? And then every time I've got to roll out the list of high-profile cases that Court TV has covered through the years and, and, and the verdicts related to those cases. And most of the time when you say you can't get a fair jury, it's usually the defendant who's saying you can't get a fair trial because... You know, it's just too high profile. Everyone's talked about it. People like me have been blabbing on about it. Uh, people have been giving their opinions about it. And you know, whether you begin with O.J. Simpson, okay, O.J. Simpson, not guilty. Uh, you can go to that woman in in Orange County, Florida. The Pinellas County jury came back and said not guilty for the murder of Kaylee Marie Anthony. And that was y'all. Yo, you never. She'll never get a fair jury. Yeah, she did. George Zimmerman, oh, no, he'll never get a fair jury. They, they've already convicted him. No, they didn't convict him at trial, so he was found not guilty as well. Uh, and some people do get convicted. Jody Arias got convicted. But ultimately, it comes down to what happens inside the courtroom. And you always can get a jury. Jury selection is controlled by the judge. And in this case, the, the case of Derek Chauvin for the murder or uh, accused of the murder of George Floyd, uh, it's Judge Cahill, and Judge Cahill has set up uh, one of the best systems for jury selection that I've seen in a high-profile case, and he's, he's doing these jurors uh, one by one after they filled out a very well-crafted questionnaire that gave both sides and the judge lots of information. There were a bunch of jurors just from the questionnaires that they eliminated immediately for cause, and then when they come in, the questioning is, is not extremely exhaustive. It's, but it's to the point, and it's very much responding to what they said, so they have an idea. Both sides have an idea going in whether they like or don't like the jury juror, and then they try to do their little uh, song and dance um, with the questioning to get the judge to dismiss them if it's someone that they don't want. So, it, it, And the judge has set this up one by one, and after each juror is questioned, then each side has to decide, in or out, you're going to use a strike or not use a strike. And they're put on the spot rather than just passing them through and then getting a bucket of 50 and then using the strikes. No, one by one. So we know where we are, and both sides can see how quickly things are actually moving. And you know, each day they're getting one, two, three jurors. And in a case like this where everyone has heard about it, where um, almost every juror has seen the video and where every juror has, has some sort of an opinion already, They're able to rehabilitate those opinions and get this jury um, to agree to the one and only question that they have to answer to to be okayed, to be um, uh, to be fair and impartial. Can you take everything that you know, everything you think, put it aside and base your opinion solely on the evidence you hear inside this courtroom? And when they say yes, inevitably, the judge will say this juror is fine. Does either side want to use one of their limited strikes to get rid of this juror? If not, they are on. And that's how uh, we are in the midst of building this jury, which it, it should get done in two weeks. It looks like it could get done in two weeks or less in this case. Unbelievable. And here's the thing. Okay. All right. So the jurors say they can be fair and impartial. How, how do we know that they actually will be? And I think what you have to do if you've never done it is actually go down to a courthouse and sit inside the courtroom for a trial. It's it's absolutely amazing. You know, watching it on Court TV, you you do get some sense of that of what's take of what it's like to be a juror, but not a complete sense because you're going to have all the analysis from people like me and you're going to and we're going to talk about things that the jury didn't hear and you'll 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 walk away with a lot more insight and information, right? And you get a much more complete picture of the story, the case, and the issues when you watch it on court TV. But when you go to the courthouse, you don't get all of that. Your experience is much more like what it is for a juror. And to me, it, it's sometimes the the jury is solely focused on what's happening. Like that's their whole world is what happens for those eight hours or so each day inside the courtroom. And then they go home and they blank, they, they, they do, they blank out everything else because they know they have to, right? And I trust that they do. They don't, they don't necessarily think about it when they go home. They got to go home, they got to eat, say hi to the, the, the spouse, maybe the kids, maybe some of them have to do a little work at night, whatever it is. But those are long days, but they go in there and it's like you, you end up with these blinders on where everything else is blocked out and, and the person leading you through everything is the judge telling you what you can do, what you can't do, what you have to listen to, what you have to ignore, uh, what the legal standards are. And to me, many times this is advantage defendant because it almost gets to the point, and, and really, again, you have to go to a courthouse and, and to understand this, that the jury... It's like that old saying, you, you you can't see the trees through the forest. Like you're in the middle of the forest and you just kind of, you, you can't see everything because you're in the middle of it. You don't have that perspective like I do when I'm covering these trials of seeing, yeah, what's happening in the courtroom, but seeing everything else. And this is actually a good thing that, that the, the jurors get that perspective because then they are much more likely and, and it's much more trustworthy that their verdict is based upon what they're hearing in the courtroom. And the arguments and, and the, the, the legal issues on what is the element and what do they have to prove and what is the burden get larger and larger and larger inside the courtroom. And all the things that we don't consider in the court of public opinion, like burden of proof, what does beyond a reasonable doubt really mean? And what does it mean to swear on a Bible? That, that you were going to do your job as instructed as a juror? And what's it like to be three or four feet away from the person who you are judging? What's it like to, to look in the eyes of the attorneys as they're making these arguments to you? What is it like then ultimately to sit in a room with 11 strangers and then talk about this whole thing? So the whole process is set up. It's amazing. It's amazing to watch it uh, in person and, And having covered trials as a correspondent in states around the nation, big, big cases and being in the courtroom, you know, eight, nine hours a day. I I have a much better feel for what the jurors are going through. Not exactly, though, because I don't go into the jury room for deliberations. That's the part that we never get to see or hear. Uh, We get to hear about it sometimes. um, But that's the, the other unique part of all this. So that's why when they say we'll never get a fair jury, understand, ladies and gentlemen, that is one big fat lie. They always do. We always do. That's how the system was built. And at Court TV, we see it day in and day out because that's all we cover our high profile cases. And if they weren't high profile before we got there, once we showed up in town, it became high profile. So... Um, Everyone gets a fair jury. They do, you know, and yes, there's exceptions to everything. I understand it. I understand that. And there may be a juror here or there out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of cases that might act up and do something wrong. But generally speaking, especially in these high profile cases, we get fair trials. We don't always agree with the verdicts, but it is what it is. It's our system working. And you can watch our system working on Court TV. We've got, as I said, our cameras inside the courtroom for the trial of Derek Chauvin. Gavel-to-gavel gavel coverage. You'll see and hear all the evidence, the arguments, um, the testimony. You'll see uh, what's happening in that COVID-friendly, uh, no, I don't want to say friendly, but this COVID um uh, altered courtroom and the way it's set up. It, it's unbelievable, but we've got the coverage. Um, if you don't know where to find Court TV and you had, have a digital antenna, just rescan it and, and you'll, you'll find us. Otherwise, you can always go uh, onto CourtTV.com and find out where we are uh, in your area. In the meantime, check out the show notes. Got lots of links for you to information. That's it for now. Got to get back to work. We're in the middle of a trial, folks. I'm Vinny Politan. Have a great week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids.